This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is General William Grinsley, and he's the Secretary of Veterans Affairs for South Carolina. It's our newest cabinet position, and we're going to talk about General Grimsley and his career, but also what Veterans Affairs does. Will, welcome to the Journal. Thank you, sir. It's an honor to be here. Well, delighted to welcome you as a veteran, but uh, as a fellow Davidson Wildcat, glad to have you. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your background before you came to be Secretary of Veterans Affairs? Yes, sir. So, uh, as always, you know, I'm proud to have two people in the same room that represent the finest private liberal arts college in the United States. But uh, (laughs) I was commissioned from Davidson out of the ROTC program in 1980 as an infantry officer. Uh, It was never really my plan to go in the Army or stay in the Army, but uh, but I did. And so I served for the 33 years subsequent to 1980, retired in 2013. I was an infantryman, as I said, um, traveled all over the world, deployed multiple combat tours in Iraq, and uh, just had tremendous opportunities to serve with and, and for and over the just the best people in the world. All right. You grew up in South Carolina, right? I did not. So my father was in the Army as well. Uh, so I grew up as a brat. I was, I'm actually the only one in my family not born in South Carolina. <laughs> I was born in Arlington, Virginia. My father was uh, stationed at the Pentagon at the time. My parents are originally from Florence. My brother born in Florence. My sister here at Fort Jackson in Columbia. Okay. And you retired to South Carolina. You and your wife live in Beaufort. We do. So uh, the short version of the family history is my brother was in the Army as well, uh, left service after five years, uh, went to Carolina Law School. His first job offer was in Beaufort. I helped move him. He's 12 years older than me. So I uh, helped him move there, fell in love with that part of the low country. Our parents were in Charleston at the time. My dad had retired as well. And uh, so we just fell in love with that part. Our sister was in North Carolina, and eventually we all ended up in Beaufort, and our parents are in, resting in the National Cemetery there. Well, how did you come to get into politics because <laughs> <laughs> well so I'm a political appointee uh, I did s- some work uh, consulting I ran a nonprofit for a few years in my in my uh, years since I retired in 2013 and uh, this position when the General Assembly uh, brought forward the law governor signed it into law in 2019 elevating this to a cabinet position for what was a division before and uh, actually, my sister uh, called me the day the announcement came out in the newspaper and said, you need to read the newspaper. You need to apply for this. And I said, nah, I'm not really sure I want to do any of that. I'm a proud veteran, but I'm pretty happy watching the tide coming in and out twice a day there in <laughs> Buford. But I did, and I talked to several people and went through the process, and uh, you know, a variety of things happened. And, and uh, thankfully, the, the governor came and offered me this opportunity, nominated me in 2020, and I was confirmed by the Senate about a month later. You were confirmed unanimously, which is not always the case with captain officers uh, in South well, Carolina. And, so. and again, I, I'm extraordinarily proud of my service, but most importantly, I'm grateful to the General Assembly and the governor. Or where was Veterans Affairs before it became a cabinet? So it's gone through a variety of iterations since its history in the late 20s, really. There's been something, some sort of veteran office in South Carolina. And I should say there's one of these in each state and territory of the United States in some way, shape, or form. About a third of us are cabinet-level positions. Um, The Division of Veterans Affairs in its previous incarnation before uh, moving to be a department was a division within the Department of Administration. Okay. So the old Budget and Control Board. Exactly. All right. Back during the Campbell administration, I was a member of the the Commission on Reorganization. and at that point, nobody knew how many boards and commissions there were in the, the state. Over 300, they guessed. Right. And if they were looking for a place to put them, it usually went to the budget control board. Right. First of all, it's very easy to navigate. And for those of us who are older veterans, it's that's really nice. Uh, I can't say that for all state agencies. No. Well, we had to redo it completely when we got when I got there. So I'm just going to briefly run through these, and then we get into them. Sure. Because I, th- I think it will tell everybody the, the, the breadth and scope of what you have to deal with. Veterans Trust Fund, Claims Assistance, um, Military Base Task Force, the Cooper Veterans Cemetery, County Veterans Affairs offices, and I, you've got one in every county. Right. Uh, employment, mental health resources, women veterans, uh, and then general resources for veterans. Well, the one that, that I guess comes to mind initially to me, uh, because it's been in the news, uh, veterans homes. South Carolina is establishing veterans homes. And I didn't see that on your website. No. And 
I'll talk about that, and then if you don't mind, I'll go back a little bit and tell you how we got where we are okay. with this expansive view on where we're trying to take the department. So the veteran homes, the veteran nursing homes, we have five currently in the state. Anderson, Welterboro here in Columbia, and newly opened in Gaffney in Florence. This is, there's a longstanding reason why they are where they are, and it has an historical connection back to the residential hospitals and treatment facilities that the old Department of Health ran, now the Department of Mental Health administers. And so the five veteran homes currently are all uh, supervised, overseen by the South Carolina Department of Mental Health. Obviously, we have a vested interest in that, and we, we work in partnership with them. But that's where they currently reside. You said you'd like to go back and, and talk about how all this came about. Sure. Because I'm a military guy, uh, when I first took the job on, I took a military decision-making process approach to figure out exactly what I was supposed to do. So we're codified in law. We're in South Carolina, uh, Chapter 25-11. Uh, that's, our, that's our governing code. And it gives me very some very specific things to do. And, and so what are those things that specifically tell So you? it has a lot to do with maintaining, for example, uh, war records. So people who have served, number of people who have served by conflict across the state, uh, to make sure that we capture adequately the amount of claims submitted through us or around us even to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs to for the benefits that the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs provides. How many people enrolled in Veteran Health Administration health care? Uh, but then we also have some state benefits. For example, we have some free tuition for certain categories of military kids. So how do we keep track of all that? There are some things specific to former prisoners of war and Agent Orange exposure from the Vietnam uh, era conflict. And, and all of those things are important for us to track. We also provide the accreditation training for all case officers working in our county offices as well as at the state. So we provide that initial accreditation training in partnership with the American Legion to, to access the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs benefit system. Uh, you mentioned the Veteran Trust Fund, for example. That's a nonprofit entity that authorizes me as its executive director with a governing board to accept donations of, of funds, uh, gifts, services to provide back to grantees who are doing good work for veterans and their family members across South Carolina. Those are some examples of the things I have to do by law. But I view this much more expansively as the things we ought to think about doing. And so when we came into that, and those would be called implied tasks in military speak, and I, I but I take those as, in many cases, pretty essential as well. So we chose to redefine the how we look at what success ought to be for the department. And we think it's best captured by a veteran population that is sound, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially, socially, or familially, the social determinants of health, if you will. If you can answer yes to those questions, the propensity for a better life over time, whether you're 18 or 118, is, is higher. I mean, that's just a true fact. And so we think we need to do that. We need to make sure that our veterans and their family members are satisfied in the dignified manner in which they've been treated. The current generation of veterans, including me, feel very, very satisfied and, quite frankly, very thankful that the citizens recognize us for what we did. That's not always been true in our history, especially for our Vietnam-era veterans. Yes. And so, Personal testimony. Yeah, exactly. And so we owe that. And my dad and my brother are both Vietnam-era veterans, and, and, and so we need, to, we need to work on that too. The third piece is that we need to make sure that our veterans are proud of their own service. So that's sometimes a challenge, believe it or not. And the fourth category is that our veteran family members are recognized and respected by their fellow citizens for their continued contributions to South Carolina and the, the nation. And, and so if that's success, and just like in any attack in the military, you start with the objective and work your way backward, that really made us go back introspectively and look at how we retooled our mission statement. And so we hang everything we do and balance it, check it against our mission statement. And it's a pretty simple one. We think we, this department leads and enables a coalition of willing partners with an interest in veterans and their families to create and sustain an environment where that population can thrive as valued and continuing contributing members to South Carolina and the nation. That's it. How many veterans do we have in South Carolina currently? Our best data is 406,000. And when you add the family members, so it, and I'm going to do some public math here, which is always a danger for me, but it, if, you, if you can transpose that roughly 60% of the serving force today, and has been for many years, is partnered or married, that 400,000 would at least probably have another 240-some thousand partners or spouses. And then you start adding kids, it'll, you'll get close to a million here pretty fast. So we're, we're talking about 15 to 20% of the population. If you add the family members, then it is. Yeah. Nine, nine and a half percent roughly are of the, of, uh, yeah. the general population of veterans. Yeah. 
We still have a few World War II vets, right? We do. Uh, not as many, obviously, and unfortunately, they're you know, just you can just do the math again. It's, it's 2022, so. Well, there's an interesting neighbor of mine in, in West Columbia. He was an enlisted man in World War II. He was not at the bridge too far, but he was close. And he was also an enlisted man in Korea. Wow. And he's still hale and hearty. And they are. And that's the beauty. That's, it's such a resilient generation of people with enormous capacity to share this legacy of service and, and just devotion to nation and, and family that um, we're, we really are trying to capture that. And that's why I hope we get to talk about this idea of living history projects because that's a, one of our major efforts we're, we're going to undertake here. Yeah. All right. Well, the Veterans Trust Fund, that, that, that interests me because, uh, quite frankly, I'd never heard of it before. Right. So someone can contribute to that, and this then helps programs where they use horses. To right. Equine-assisted therapy. Yes. Good. So the, the basis of it, it's a little over, I think it was formed in 1997, so 25, coming up in maybe 25 years thereabouts. It exists as a standalone 501c3 incorporated nonprofit within state government. It's governed by a board, currently captured in code, again, part of the code. It's a 19-member board. We can accept donations. Most of the monies that come into it, though, come through a box check on your South Carolina 1040, your income tax return. Mm -hmm. We average thirty-five dollars or $36,000 a year in donations that way. <laughs> we need to get much more in the Veterans Trust Fund. This is South Carolina aspirationally the most military veteran-friendly state in the United States, we could do so much more. And so we, thanks to the governor's office and um, working hard in conjunction with us, we've identified a bunch of new board members to come in and fill some seats and uh, really build on the great work that's been done to this date. But, but we can do a lot more. And so we're going we're gonna to retool this and uh, get some new board members in, rejuvenate some business practices with it. I'm the executive director by code, which is good for me. I'm happy to do that. Because you don't have to pay me to do that. That's just another additional <laughs> duty, which I'm which I'm proud to do. But we really can use the Veteran Trust Fund to help supplement or complement, maybe that's a better word, the, the generous appropriations we get from the South Carolina General Assembly, what we're able to get from the federal government through grants and others, and, and really bring to bear all the good offices of the great people in South Carolina to reward and really reinforce the good work that's going on across the state. Well, that's why I asked because I was not familiar with it, and I thought our listeners might be might be interested. Right, and we have a couple really interesting ones. One right here in Blythewood, just north of the city, um, Big Red Barn Retreat, which is a portion of their work. They use equine assisted therapy, and and then there are several others. There's another great one in Aiken. There are several others around the state that it's really fascinating the healing that can come uh, to anybody, but in our case, a veteran and, and a family member. Uh, using this, using an animal, and the trust that you build between animal and person, and and how it it's yeah. it's fascinating to yeah. watch. Um, well, we need to pause a moment. Let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with General Will Grimsley, who is Secretary of Veterans Affairs of South Carolina. Well, PTSD is is something, of course, that particularly our younger veterans, your generation, but even even younger, coming back from Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, and even earlier, Kosovo, and sure. it's taken a while for people to get aware of this. Sure. So almost any adult in the United States or anywhere in the world who has lived a life as we have has some notion of trauma in their life, whether it's the loss of a parent or a loved one or a child, you've been in a significant car accident or gone through something truly traumatic. Um, we all have trauma. And the notion of post-traumatic stress is just a fact of life. We all have some of that. The, when, when it gets to the point where it is, in fact, a disorder, which is treatable, then that changes, fundamentally changes the dynamic some. There are probably a lot more people that have or had the post-traumatic stress disorder than were ever diagnosed or treated, but it is a treatable disorder. And, and so the fact that we are more aware of it today, and when you put post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder in conjunction with traumatic brain injury and, uh, and all the other things that have gone on, um, it offers us the opportunity to really think differently about how we provide resources and even treatment, which may not be therapy or a clinician. It may not be pharmaceutical. It may be something like equine-assisted therapy or yoga or, or a whole host of other things. And so when we talk about our mission and how we're trying to do business – 
Uh, we think that we have the opportunity to pull these coalition partners, if you will, and by that I mean federal, state, county, local, that we use not for-profit corporations and their good offices. We use nonprofits. We use veteran service organizations, the traditional ones that you might think about, like the Veterans of Foreign Wars and American Legion and Disabled American Veterans and Purple Heart, Marine Corps League. But then you have to bring in the younger ones that a lot of our younger veterans are are latching onto more. Team Rubicon, Team Red, White, and Blue, The Mission Continues, Iraq, Afghanistan, Veterans of America, Student Veterans of America. They're, they're all out there. All right, Will, let's talk about that because my generation, it was the VFW and the American Legion, and uh, a lot of us who were Vietnam vets did not join the American Legion. Right. And so I've never really heard about these, these other organizations. They're, they're smaller and more focused. Um, in some cases, they're smaller. In many cases, they're growing larger. Uh, so the American Legion, for example, tremendous. I'm a Boys State of Virginia American Legion graduate. They provide scholarships. They support those scout, boys, boys and Girl Scouts. I'm also an Eagle Scout. Um, they have just done for many years, that, uh, tr- matter of fact, they're just celebrating their over 100-year birthday. Um, they, they have done for years tremendous work in the community. They're our largest, pretty sure this is right, our largest traditional congressionally chartered veteran service organization in South Carolina. But it's about 5% of the 406,000 veterans are members of the American Legion. I'm a legionnaire. Veterans of foreign wars are the same. Similar organization, but different eligibility requirements. And they're really tremendous. They're long-serving. The problem is a lot of our younger veterans aren't joining them. Um, In many cases, it's a lack of of information. They don't see the value. Um, And we're trying to help re-educate our younger veteran population, sort of the the post-9-11 veterans, certainly. Um, but to educate them about the power of these service organizations and how they really help work with Congress to, to bring about change on behalf of veterans. These newer ones, though, have sprung up because of the, the way the younger generation of veterans view themselves and where they place their value, which is less in the traditional military organization, sort of the, the commander of the first sergeant, <laughs> the sergeant major, the adjutant. They're not as interested in that because they have become very used, especially in the combat theater, to building small teams to solve very complex problems in a very dynamic, complicated situation. And that's what they like. They're looking for service opportunities. They're looking for connectedness. They're looking for the ability to give back to a community and, most importantly, to get back in with the tribe, as we say. So I'm a, I'm a brand-new enlistee in Team Rubicon, for example. I spent this past weekend – helping just up the road here get a house back in shape that had a tree fall in it during the ice storm in January with a group of 13 other veterans. We, I didn't know any of them. We just came together under some leadership, and we took this thing down to its studs. How would I know that something like that, they, there was a need and I could step in? Sure. Well, they, the, these organizations are really robust, largely in social media. So um, if you're not a social media person, because that's how most younger veterans communicate and advertise— but Rubicon's been around for 10 or 12 years. It started in disaster response to Haiti, for example. They work internationally. There are Rubicon people in Poland right now doing emergency relief for refugees coming out of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so they work internationally. They work locally. And so you, you enlist. Essentially, you sign up. And I'm not in charge of anything. I mean, I was a general in the Army, but I'm a private in Rubicon, and that's cool <laughs> with me. So it's the ability to go work with veterans to do something good for somebody else with, at no charge to the somebody else. Mm-hmm. Team Red, White, and Blue is uh, – is it more about connectedness and social opportunities, but they're in this community service project business. Um, Iraq, Afghanistan veterans of America, that is obviously, if you served in Iraq and or Afghanistan, it provides advocacy at the national level, but it's also local in terms of its ability to raise groups to do something organically. And I know that sounds weird to a lot of people, but, but that's how they operate. And by the way, there's no cost to join any of these, as opposed to the chartered organizations, you pay a fee to be a member. Yeah. Uh, these younger ones, you don't. I've been retired from Carolina for 12 years now. I understand there's a veterans club there now? Yes, sir. So, and this is a really exciting thing. So there are there are a lot of student veterans in all of our uh, higher education and institutions, tech college and four-year uh, across the state. I think it's 11 chapters we have now of, the, of an, an official organization called the Student Veterans of America, the one here at Carolina, Clemson, College of Charleston, Citadel, Coastal Carolina, uh, USC Aiken, they're very robust. And and on top of that, you don't have to be a member of the organization to take advantage of these veteran centers that several of our universities and tech colleges have started. It's a place where student veterans can not only go to get some help, some guidance, some you know pathfinding help, 
but but also to again reconnect with people of a like background. You know, it might not be the same service or even the same era. One might be a graduate student, one might be an undergraduate, but it, it's they're really really powerful groups of people because they provide an advocacy uh, connection point. It keeps the administration, the staff of these uh, the institutions aware of their student veterans, and it should be no surprise to any of us, and it certainly isn't to me, that our student veterans attend class at a higher rate, they graduate at a higher rate, often with a higher grade point average, and they tend to be more focused as they transition out of university, academia, into their post-university life. Amen. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but but I must say that is a refreshing change because in my 40 years at Carolina, there wasn't much support. Right. And, and here's an example of what they've been able to bring to bear. And the General Assembly has been so incredibly supportive, um, as has the administration of several of our universities. So if I'm using the, my GI Bill, which is much more generous now than it was certainly when you left service, um, if I'm using my GI Bill and I'm going to the University of South Carolina today or Clemson, and I'm enrolled in, let's say, an engineering course at Clemson, where when you get to the upper level courses, you send, you know, there are finite amounts of slots available, and sometimes they're only offered one semester a year. If I'm using my GI Bill and I don't get in in time, I might run out of time. So therefore, my GI Bill expires before I'm done with my degree, undergraduate or graduate, and so now I'm going to be paying out of pocket. Well, several universities have said, no, we need to have what we call uh, priority registration. So if you're a veteran student and you're using your GI Bill, you move to the top of the line. That's a real opportunity to, wow. to not only take advantage of of the GI Bill, but it's really the way the universities are giving back and recognizing. Uh, as it's, and it's, that's how you say thank you for your service. Yeah. It's more than just patting you on the back. Yeah. What, what about hiring practices? With the federal government, obviously, a veteran's, you get a veteran's preference. Right. And, it, and at one point, uh, actually when I retired, I had to inform the dean of the college that uh, she had to make a new minority hire. And she said, why? I said, because as a Vietnam veteran, I was considered under state law a minority right. hire. Right. So uh, it's been in South Carolina law for years. It lay dormant for a while in terms of hiring practices. The state human resources division uh, last year came back forward and said, you know, it's time to reinvigorate this. Can you help us? And so we did. We partnered with them. And Karen Wingo and her team have just been tremendous making this a priority. So now, if any state job that goes you know, advertised as, as they do, if, if a veteran applies for a job, they're not necessarily guaranteed preference for the hiring, but they have to offer an interview to at least one veteran. And, and we're already seeing the results of that. Yeah. So we're excited about this. And yeah. then we're working hard in the civilian employment sector, too. We've been partnered with a series of great organizations to do hiring fairs across the state, mm-hmm. virtually and in person. Again, it's fascinating in South Carolina, especially today, we often have more jobs than we have people uh, available. And But almost every corporation, every business that we talk to says, gosh, we really want to hire veterans. How can we find them? So we're working to make that connection. We don't have a veteran unemployment problem in South Carolina, really. We have an underemployment problem. So we need to do better at getting veterans hired at a rate commensurate with their background skills, experience, and education to take care of themselves and their families. Okay. The first place they would need to go then would be their county veterans office, right? So, as you said earlier, we have a county office in each county, uh, 46, obviously. Um, That's by law. They're nominated by their legislative delegation, appointed by me in two-year terms. That's the way the law reads. And then each of them have their own staff, or in some cases they don't. We work with them. They don't work directly for me. Um, They really work for their counties. They're paid their salaries, and most of their operating expenses are paid by their counties. The department accredits them in partnership with the American Legion. And then they're connected to their to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs through claims management systems. So, and, but but they physically have an office in the county? There physically is an office in each county. Some of them are part-time. Uh, most of them are full-time, especially in the larger counties. So the ones with 30,000 more veterans, which is Richland, uh, Charleston, and Greenville. And then you go down below that, it's O'Ree, uh, let me see, O'Ree, Lexington, Berkeley, Beaufort, um, go with the next level down. And then it goes all the way down to you get to Allendale and McCormick that have veterans, but about 1,000 or under 1,000, and kind of everything in between. Um, each county office is different in the capabilities they provide. They all do the claims, uh, benefits, application, and and appeals business. That's That's their bread and butter. Some of them are able to do more just because they have greater resources. But regardless, we're partnered with them 
where the, where they can't do it in some of the r- more rural counties, the less enfranchised or the less uh, affluent, we're partnered with them to try and provide that. That's a big part of what we think this department is supposed to be doing. Well, I was, I was thinking about some of our smaller counties where they are probably part-time, and the, the veterans from those counties may be uh, less educated. They may have less income, and they probably aren't socially networked. That's the, the biggest challenge most of the, especially the smaller and more rural counties, is the transportation infrastructure to help get them to appointments in many cases and the lack of access to, to broadband and the information. So when you go back to the mission statement, this notion of having coalition partners, this is where we work with other state agencies, the, certainly the county offices and county agencies. This is where our nonprofits come to play. And so to take advantage of all these great efforts that are going on across the state, we created an operations director to integrate all these capabilities to identify them first, asset map them across the state, because we need to do a much better job to create equitable delivery of services across the state, regardless of where you live. And so that's the path we've been on now for the past two years. So how do we do that? We've got to find these organizations. If they don't exist, can we help some create them? Or can we use somebody in adjunct capability or an adjacent capability in a, in a neighboring county? And, and so I have an integrator in each of the four traditional regions. So when the upstate here in the Midlands and the PD in the low country, that, that person's job is to identify both the need and the resources and to really try and bridge that gap over time. As I said, there are some tremendous groups of people in every aspect of, of creating that sound veteran that already exist. It's just a matter of getting resources to need and need to resources. Well, I, I think that's wonderful because this did not exist before. No, and and that's I don't mean that pejoratively either. It just didn't, and so we've as I said we've taken a more expansive view of this, and and I, I'm just privileged to come to work every day and do this. It's exciting. All right. Well, the Cooper Veterans Cemetery is that the federal cemetery? That is not. That's a state. So we have three national cemeteries here in in South Carolina, uh, here in at Fort Jackson and Columbia, uh, down in Beaufort where I live, where my parents rest. And I, by the way, I have a great aunt and great uncle there and a brother-in-law in Beaufort as well, and along with two soldiers of mine who were killed in action are all buried in Beaufort, along with some significant, I mean, some significant pieces of South Carolina history reside in, in the Beaufort National Cemetery, as they do everywhere. And then Florence, of course, is the other, which is my family's home. So we all have one state-administered uh, veteran cemetery, the M.J. Dolly Cooper Cemetery in Anderson. And we do that in partnership with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. So the General Assembly appropriates some monies. We get the land deeded outright to us. And then the federal government comes and they pay to defray the cost for the burial. It's just like it's run just like any federal national cemetery. We, we want to expand and we have a we have an application process ongoing now to get one or maybe two more national cemeteries. I'm sorry, state cemeteries here in South Carolina because the need is there. They have to be, again, a, a federal government rule. They have to be 75 miles away from each other. So there's this, there's a map with a series of circles to try and define where we can, where we can put it. That you have to get a waiver if it's inside 75 miles. So uh, sadly, I don't think Allendale makes 75 miles from Beaufort. It doesn't. But one of the places we've looked at is Bamberg, mm-hmm. which not just in Bamberg do we have a need, but it's also close enough to places like Dorchester and Aiken and other places mm-hmm. that do have a need. And, and then we've looked, because uh, we went through the screening criteria, not only did we want to make sure we met the federal guideline for 75 miles, but we think it's important to connect back to where we have uh, a large veteran population, and in many cases, the less enfranchised veteran populations, both uh, affluence as well as minority veterans. But we really want to connect where we have an opportunity to tie back to our South Carolina history. So how can we use a place of memorialization into perpetuity to tie back into our great military tradition and history, which clearly resides all over the state. Mm-hmm. But I start thinking, started thinking a lot about how do we connect it to the Revolutionary War period and the Liberty Trail. And so, you know, that's not necessarily true in Bamberg, but it is close enough, certainly in Dorchester and Aiken and other parts and Beaufort. But when you get up in the other second, the second choice, it's sort of that confluence of Union, Spartanburg and Lawrence oh. County. Yep. You saw my face light up. <laughs> <laughs> and the third place is, is down in, in uh, Berkeley, where uh, Santee Cooper land is another one. So we've got all these great opportunities to ed- re-educate our citizens about who we are and where we came from. Yeah. Well, I think that's incredible uh, because the opportunities, Bu- the Beaufort National Cemetery is almost full, is it not? It is. There is some space left, um, but to really expand much beyond the existing available land is going to require 
some significant work because people are living in those houses or their businesses all surrounding it uh, on the other three sides. And Boundary Street, of course, cuts right in front of it. Florence still has some pretty significant room. Of course, Fort Jackson is our newest. There's a lot of land there left. But we want to make sure that we do this memorialization correctly, both uh, internment and inurnment. And so we really need to look hard at this. It's the right way to do business. And we've got huge support from the legislature here, but also from the veteran service organizations and just the local communities. I mean, we really are blessed in the state. That is good to know. Uh, because again, I wasn't familiar with the state veterans cemetery. Right. So, and it's a beautiful piece of land. It's, um, it's directly adjacent actually to the state veteran nursing home up in Anderson. So it's on the outskirts of Anderson, actually, but Anderson County. Okay. All right. The South Carolina Military Base Task Force, I mean, that we know what that is. Congress goes through this periodically about... <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> uh, over time, uh, Myrtle Beach Air Force Base has disappeared. The Charleston Navy Yard disappeared. Right. But we still have significant military bases in South Carolina. Congress, in its wisdom, has to review what, every 10 years? Well, we haven't had a base realignment and closure BRAC, as it's known uh, in the, we love speaking in acronyms, you know, it's a military as its own language. Uh, the Department of Defense has not run one since, an official one since 2005, but we are always looking and things close or are closed short of an official BRAC. They do happen. And so we have eight active duty installations in South Carolina, which is enormous for a state this size. We have a very large, very powerful, and very important South Carolina National Guard, which, of course, isn't in my purview, but we're, you know, mm. we're related, kind of like everything else in South Carolina. We're related somehow. Well, we're relate, obviously related to the National Guard. And so it's good that we have that because it's robust. It's important for the national security of the United States. Half of the Marines and all of, almost all now of the female Marines that come in the Marine Corps every year are trained at Paris Island in, in Beaufort County. About 70% of all the soldiers in the United States Army initial entry training is done right here at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. The 20th Fighter Wing here at Shaw Air Force Base, along with the 3rd Army, which is the Army component of the forces in the in Middle East of the world, are based at Shaw Air Force Base. Most of that relief effort that was done through military airlift came into Joint Base Charleston, the tremendous airmen that provided that capability to airlift 130-some thousand refugees out of Afghanistan and get our forces evacuated. The multimodal transportation at Joint Base Charleston, five new national security cutters that are coming for the Coast Guard into Charleston, the Navy Information Warfare Center in Charleston, um, all of these capabilities. Marine Corps Air Station Beaufort trains and deploys all the F-35 Joint Strike Fighters for the Marine Corps, but they're also training all the vertical, short-range vertical takeoff and landing fighters for all of our allies. They're all training right there at Marine Corps Air Station Beaufort and, of course, Fort Jackson with the initial entry training. But... That's just a piece of this. And so when you add all of this up, the fiscal impact to, to the South Carolina revenue every year, the most recent study was in 2019, $25.3 billion in the South Carolina economy through the U.S. Department of Defense every year. The University of South Carolina is completing a study for us now. We think that's going to come closer to $30 billion uh, infusion, which is, of course, obviously huge to the revenue of South Carolina. But it's the human capital investment in the state that comes from the military presence that I find equal, if not more compelling than the fiscal impact. This year, we've added Fort Gordon, Georgia, which of course isn't in South Carolina, but it's right across the river in Augusta. And so a large number of the people who live and work on Fort Gordon live, work, and send their kids to school in South Carolina, and they want to stay in South Carolina. So when we add all that up together, I'm sorry, I forget to mention Naval Hospital in Beaufort, which is where I get my medical care. <laughs> so when you add all that together, um, it's a huge component to South Carolina, and that's just what exists right now. Several of these installations have added capabilities and components to them. I mentioned Third Army, U.S. Army Central Command here at Shaw Air Force Base. We have a three-star command, Army Command, sitting on Shaw Air Force Base. Well, Fort Jackson's added AG finance and chaplains. Schools. Schools. Exactly. And so, for example, and, and most of our bases have excess capacity to do more. I don't see a large growth in any of our bases. We certainly won't get any more bases. But I, when we can bring other components to work, train on, or maybe eventually move to some of our bases, for example, Paris Island has been doing some operational training, not just their initial entry training, which is already huge. That's where they make Marines. But they've been doing some cool operational work in the littoral business that is the Marine Corps' bread and butter. Forces have moved, have come from Camp Lejeune in North Carolina on a littoral combat ship or a small deck amphib, and then they've done some training right there in the marshes and, and landing capabilities of 
of Paris Island. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, I remember the last time that Brack came up, one of the things they were looking at is how did the state support particularly families, right. uh, and this had to do with certification. You know, if you're a certified teacher in a certain state, can you get certified in South Carolina? At the time, South Carolina didn't have a lot of veterans-friendly things like that. We didn't, but we do now. So, again, thanks to the General Assembly, they passed the Military Spouse Licensing and Credentialing uh, Bill last year. It's gone into effect now as law. So we have streamlined capabilities through labor licensing regulation. My friend Emily Farr, the director of LLR, her boards can now accept a much more streamlined capability for military family members to get licensed in South Carolina. As they work through the process to eventually get licensed, they can go to work almost immediately. That's been a huge boon uh, thanks to Superintendent Spearman and the Department of Education. Teachers can now go to work. It's a very streamlined process to help in a, help work through the to fill the, the void that we have in, in teachers that are licensed in South Carolina to take care of our kids. Those kinds of things exist. So you're right. The quality of life piece is a big component of when the Department of Defense and Congress looks at who's military friendly. They look at things like that. They look at the availability of health care, both physical and behavioral health, off installation. They look at the quality of our public schools. And so a big part of what we're, we've taken on, because, the again, the military-based task force has existed uh, it was in the Department of Commerce before, <laughs> and so now it's rolled up into our department, and it's an integral part of our campaign. So the advocacy for our military installations, I have a separate division of military affairs that does that. They focus exclusively on that. So take it even more expansively to how do we improve the resilience of the installations to face climate challenges. Paris Island and the Air Station are cla- and Charleston are classic examples of that. So I'm going to meet uh, in a couple of weeks at Paris Island with the leadership to look at how we can develop some additional partnerships through the South Carolina Office of Resiliency with Ben Duncan. How do we get the Floodwaters Commission, maybe bring some private practice partners in there to help the CG down there and her staff think about how improving the resilience through preclusion of storm surge in the event of a hurricane, for example. They're already doing cool work. How do we help enhance that? And the General Assembly, again, has been very generous both in their support personally and now financially to put some additional funds so we can help preclude encroachment and, and do things like that. I'll give you one more example. And then at just outside the air station on the north end of the runway, the main runway there, um, a group of private citizens came together to donate land to the Open Land Trust in Beaufort to put in permanent conservation easement 2,000 acres of pristine marshland on it Oak Point, which is, if you're familiar with that part of the world, it's beautiful land. That way there's no development. And so now that helps the Marine Corps in their strike fighter and F-18 population, it precludes any additional challenges through through land development or housing development to take that away. So that's an example that we didn't have to facilitate a partner in Beaufort County through the Open Land Trust with, with really thankful, forward-thinking, dedicated, patriotic citizens who were both conservation-minded, essentially, but to do that, take care of our beautiful uh, marshlands there, but it better enables the military mission, which only adds to the national security of the United States, but also takes care of the quality of life to ensure that the Marine Corps Air Station Buford is ready and able. I mean, that's a that's a huge piece of stuff there. Will, we need to pause to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with General Will Grimsley, who is Secretary of Veterans Affairs for the state of South Carolina. All right, Will, that last story about the, the land trust in Buford, that was, that was a great story. And of course, it's not anything to do with Veterans Affairs, but Paris Island, the folks there have been with historians and archaeologists finding Santa Elena right. and Charles Fort, the, the earliest European settlements in South Carolina have been tremendously cooperative in that venture. They, they have. And, and on top of that, the Native American shell rings that are on there, and it, it's an archaeological treasure. And what, what's going on there is going on with the Battle of Grays Hill outside the Marine Corps Station Beaufort. And we talked about the Liberty Trail earlier, the Palmetto Trail that runs right through Fort Jackson. Um, I mentioned the National Guard earlier, but the tremendous work that goes on with them at Joint Base McIntyre and the collaborative, cooperative opportunities we have, it's just, it abounds here in the state. Well, cooperation and collaboration has not always been a a watchword in South Carolina, I I can tell you. That's, That's the only piece of direction the governor gave me. Cooperation, collaboration, communication was the watchword, and I'm, I'm all about that. It's not about who gets credit. It's about getting things done. You have a separate division for women veterans. Too many people think of veterans. They do not think of women as being veterans. But what percentage of our 
military forces now are are women? Um, well, in the in the force today, it's about fifteen percent are women. Of course, we've opened up. I and mean, I was an infantry officer. There are women infantry officers. There are women infantry company commanders now. Over a hundred women have graduated from Ranger School. Um, as an example, we have women in Special Forces Qualification Course. I think there's still a woman in SEAL in the BUDS course for the Navy right now. Uh, women have gone to the Marine Corps School of Infantry. But about 13% of our veterans today in South Carolina are women. Um, and you're right. Very often, somebody will approach a couple and, and go immediately to the man and say, oh, what service were you in? And the woman there will say, he's not the veteran. I'm the veteran. It's the largest growing demographic in the United States and in South Carolina. And our projection is we'll have about 20% of our veteran population by 2030 will be women. Any unique issues dealing with that or the fact that they're not, generally not recognized? Well, that's the first and most important thing that we have to get past is they're, they're an important component to our tribe and we need to recognize them for their service as veterans and the fact that there are unique challenges in many cases with women um, that we need to address more directly as well. And, and I do have a women minority veterans coordinator on the staff. She's tremendous. She's a Navy veteran and she is dynamic. She's forward thinking. She's collaborative. She's doing things on her own initiative, things like Women Warrior Summits and, and really gathering better data for women. Uh, a couple examples of the challenges, though. There are physical, obviously physical differences, but there, there are physical challenges as well that the, in some cases that women have endured in service or while deployed, especially in the combat zone most recently, that need to be addressed. And, and the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the Veteran, Veterans Health Administration has taken huge leaps forward to provide those capabilities. And, and it's exciting to see what they're doing. So obviously, we're partnered there. Um, there are some behavioral challenges, too. The notion of post-traumatic stress and stress disorder we talked about earlier, there, there are some components of that. We often think of that as combat stress, which is a component. But things like military sexual trauma, uh, harassment, and other things that lead to trauma overall or over time, um, even developmental trauma from pre-service that it's, that's exacerbated by act, you know, things that happened while in service. Those are the things that, that we really are spotlighting on to take advantage. But I would flip it around a little bit and say, while we need, to, we need to address them, it's really instilling the notion of pride so that our women veterans are doing what they need to be doing, in many cases are, stand up and be proud to be counted, identify as a veteran and come in and, and do good work. It really is compelling. Uh, we've touched almost everything. We've touched employment, claims assistance. Is this something that would normally go through the VA? Or are you are you helping? So we help. There are a lot of ways that a, a veteran can apply for their benefits. Yeah. One of my frustrations, and I'm going to continue to fight this fight. Well, I got a couple of them, but <laughs> um, one is that we don't get people immediately enrolled, and by we, the Department of Defense and the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, don't get people immediately enrolled the day they leave service. You leave with your DD-214, which is your I served piece of paper. It's a very important piece of paper, as you know. It gives you access to a lot of things. But we don't immediately transition them into the veterans space. So, for example, only about 40% of our veterans in South Carolina are enrolled in Veteran Health Administration healthcare. A lot of people don't want to. It's a pain in the neck. Um, they don't think they qualify for anything. But they do. And so I'm going to – I'm on a push with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs – to establish a VA office in every one of our separation transfer points in South Carolina on our active duty installations and at the National Guard. So the day they migrate out of service, they're immediately enrolled to get a veteran ID card right there, which the VHA will provide. But right now you got to go to Dorn or Ralph Johnson, the medical centers, to get your ID card. That's crazy. If you're living in Walhalla and Oconee County, there's a better than even chance you don't want to drive all the way to Columbia to get a VA ID card that you may or may not ever use. But at the day you separate from service, if you can get that, then you are immediately enrolled. Whether you choose to apply for benefits or not is up to you. But at least get your name in the mix so that we can identify you. Then we'd have a better handle on who you are and how you do business. That's one thing we're going to work through. Uh, the second one is the whole transition process from active duty is just not very well done. And so we're working with our installations to do better. But we're going to create a virtual transition assistance opportunity that you can access online 24-7, 365, because everybody has to go through separation counseling within a year of your separation, whether you're retiring or just leaving service. I know that wasn't true when you left service. I was going to say, how long, <laughs> how long has that been in effect? Uh, over 20 years. And, and it can be really a force for good, but right now it's not outcomes-based, it's just output-based. It's whether you attend it or not. We want to make it outcomes-based. 
So we're going to create a virtual capability that will complement the federal program. But it's more than just a rehash of what's in the federal program because we're actively recruiting veterans across the nation to move here. Why South Carolina? Why Grimsley or Edgar in South Carolina? Why Grimsley or Edgar in Beaufort or Richland County, South Carolina? Or why go to the University of South Carolina to get an advanced degree and teach? Or why do what I do? Or So we're going to, trying to parse it out by why South Carolina, why you belong in South Carolina, where you want to live, what you want to do. And then we're supplementing that with an exciting program called the Palmetto Pathfinder, which is, think of it like a buddy or a sponsor that you can connect to in your local hometowns. We have 67 of them trained thus far. It's a four-day training program that we're running free. Gives the ability to sign up to be a near-peer sponsor, mentor, buddy, and potentially an intervention capability. So if, if you're going south employment or you're sad or you know, might be drinking too much or something, that it all can be like an interventionist, not to be a clinician or a therapist, but to refer you more quickly. That in partnership with a, with a technological enabler that we're able to field thanks to the generosity of the Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation of South Carolina called uh, the South Carolina Veterans Coalition Powered by Combined Arms. It's an app that is uh, user-friendly, smartphone-enabled. It's a referral capability. So Grimsley signs up. All I've got is my name, my phone number, and my email address. And I can connect to a Pathfinder that way. I can connect to a service. And then we're, as we bring these organizations, nonprofits, corporations, Department of Employment Workforce, DEOTIS, DMH, whomever, they're all part of this coalition. It's an immediate referral capability that that agency has to refer within 72 hours back to the veteran. And then we can capture this in a closed-loop system over time. Oh, man, that's... that's we're that's, really excited about this. Hey. I got my 214 <laughs> and a certificate of thanks and a plane ticket back to Columbia, South there Carolina. And that was, Captain, don't let the door hit you on the way yeah, out. exactly. But we want to actively recruit. You know, if you came from South Carolina and you want to come home, come back. We got lots to offer you. If you've never been here before, come to South Carolina, visit. We're nice people. We got great cost of living, great quality of life. You can be in the mountains, the Midlands, the horse country, the PD or the beach within five, you can be in South Carolina, anywhere in five hours in South Carolina well, by car. I was just thinking with, with the major bases we have, people and the number of folks that out-process in their careers or their enlistment, right. to have that kind of office there as part of the out-processing process. Now, how is right. that? That's an army. It is. <laughs> uh, it's great. Yeah, and, and we think it could be a game changer for us. But the other part, and, and I've not quite broken through this yet, as well, but but we will, and I've talked to each of the recruiting commands about it, is right now the Department of Education is awesome. So if you've enlisted in service or you've been appointed to one of the service academies, got received an appointment, or you have an ROTC scholarship, when you graduate from high school, you get a little red, white, and blue cord to identify you when you walk across the stage. That's a huge thing. We want to immediately enroll them so that we gather their name, email address, and cell phone number as they enter service, you know, in any of those ways, and, and if it's not an ROTC scholarship, if you belong to an ROTC program, mm -hmm. so that we can start to send you, at least annually, hey, this, uh, congratulations, this is the anniversary of your enlistment. You know, we're, South Carolina is very proud of you. We're here for you when you're ready to come home. So that we can build this literally service cradle all the way to memorialization and grave. Mm -hmm. So that we can really keep the tribe together not to take away from the rest of the nation, but I'm happy to take people away from the rest of the nation to have them come to South Carolina. Again, it just continues to strengthen the, the human capital, the fabric of society in our great state. All right. And you, you've talked about 2030. In 2030, you expect how many veterans to live in South Carolina? Well, it will probably it will go down because the numbers are already decreasing as our World War II and Korea veterans go on to their greater reward, not soon to be followed by our Vietnam veterans. Um, and that's just an unfortunate fact of life. The other you know, piece that I think we all ought to remember is even in the most recent conflicts, we've had less than 1% of the population of the United States in uniform since 9-11-2001 in any of the six services, so Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, or Space Force, and the, in any of the three components, so Active Guard or Reserve. So it's about 3 million people who can be legitimately called veteran since post 9-11-2001. And, and that number is, of course, now decreasing because we have fewer reserve mobilizations and guard mobilizations for, for federal service, or at least, well, the guard, not necessarily so yet. They're very busy. But in the reserve component, and, and so the numbers are going to shrink, but, but we'll see. If we follow the current projection, I think it's about 375,000 by 2030. But if we actively recruit, because veterans are leaving the Northeast and the Midwest, and they're coming South. So we are seeing a growth. And we... We want to see, maintain stability or grow that. 
and, and of course, you take the veterans and you use the multiplier of spouses and children. Right. Because they say if they like what they have, all these employment opportunities that we have, the great educational opportunities we have in our higher education, our tremendous tech college program uh, system that many of them have veteran success offices too. There are some great programs going on in cyber and information technology and aircraft maintenance, um, welding, some really great hard skill trades that we need desperately in the state that are very, very veteran friendly and focused. And you can use your GI Bill there too. And by the way, if the family is happy where you are or where you're coming to, your kids will want to stay here and go to school here and enter the workforce here. And it just it's a self-perpetuating growth. I couldn't be happier, more privileged, or prouder to do this. Hey, hey. And look, it all goes back to your being a Davidson grad. There you go. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. General Will Grimsley, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you, sir. This has been a huge privilege. I'm a longtime listener. I'm a huge fan of South Carolina Public Radio and Educational Television. And uh, the education of our citizens is, is paramount. And certainly it's been a benefit and a blessing in my life. And, and so I, I couldn't be happier. All right. Go Cats. Go Cats. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Not only did I get to talk with a fellow Davidson Wildcat, but I learned an awful lot about what this department and General Grimsley are doing to assist those who have served our nation and their families. It really was an eye-opening experience, and it will be an ongoing part of our state's history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.